Good morning, everybody. So I know that several of you guys had a lion this morning. I'm not bitter. But what I want to know is when you finally got up, what did you have for breakfast? Who had toast? Oh, not so many. I think the earlier service, there were more toast eaters there, I have to say. Who had muesli? Who didn't have breakfast at all? Oh. <laughs> oh. This week I had porridge. Porridge? Ah, oh, right. Okay. Mary, was it you? you were porridge as well. Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? Last week I was in the States and they offered me donuts for breakfast. I did just about resist. <laughs> but what you have for breakfast probably depends a little bit on your culture. And uh, for first century Jews, then bread really was a staple. And so I think that in our reading this morning, when we heard uh, from John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, then we're familiar enough with this and the idea of bread as a staple food that we do the analogy quite well and we go, yep, Jesus is saying that uh, he is our most basic staple food. So we've kind of got that bit sorted. Now, I had a friend uh, from college who was a, who lived in Northern Ireland and she didn't used to think that a meal was a meal unless it had potatoes. And I rather think Jesus would have said to her, I am the potatoes of life. <laughs> I've also heard that sometimes this passage gets translated in Asian cultures as, I am the rice of life. But I think that this morning we'll stick with the words as we have them, I am the bread of life. The thing is, we're so familiar with this phrase that we don't struggle with it like the first listeners did. We know what it is that Jesus is talking about. But perhaps it is worth a second look. And particularly as we're studying this passage as part of our sweep through the whole good news of John. I wonder what else we can learn by looking at this passage together this morning. And in particular, there are three questions that I wanted to ask. I want to know, why did Jesus feed the 5,000? What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And finally, as we seek to apply this passage to ourselves, to whom shall we go? So, let's get started. Back at the start of chapter, of, of chapter 6 of John, we heard it this morning, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Now, by anybody's counting, that was quite a miracle. And I wonder, have you ever wished for a miracle like that? Perhaps you've thought, if only God would do something just like that, then my friends or my family member that I love so much that I really want to come to know Jesus. Well, if God did that, then they couldn't say it wasn't true. They would have to turn to him in faith. Have you ever wanted that? I know that I have. But the trouble is... It doesn't seem to work quite like that. You see, this morning, in our reading, or just in, in our story earlier, then Jesus fed 5,000 men, let alone women and children. If you look at your uh, gospel in front of you, he then went on to walk on water, to calm a storm. He did all of these things. And yet still, in verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After all that they'd seen, their miracles somehow, it doesn't seem like they always convinced people. Maybe the people didn't really understand 
what was going on behind the miracles. So why did Jesus do it? Well, at a basic level, he did it to meet a need. They were hungry. God is a God of love and his abundant generosity and his practical concern for the people just sings out of our Bibles, doesn't it? I mean, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. But as John tells it, then there's something more to Jesus' miracles than just this. John refers to them as signs. Now, I looked up signs in the Oxford English Dictionary. Apparently, a sign is an object, quality or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. So, for John, then these miracles attest to Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, providing food from nowhere, well, that is certainly quite a feat. But it's not without biblical precedent. You see, in the time of Moses, then God had provided the Israelites with manna sent from heaven to sustain them in the desert. And when Jesus provided food, then the people were quite quick to pick up on the parallels. If you've got your Bible open, in verse 14, the people saw the signs that he had done and said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, they were referring to the long-standing promise um, recorded in Deuteronomy verse 18:14, of a prophet who would speak God's wo- words. Moses had said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own people, and you must listen to him. And it seems at first that the combination of powerful teaching and miraculous powers was enough to convince the people and that they read the sign. But somehow, they still missed the point. Rather than worshipping Jesus as the Son of God, they wanted to make him king. You see, they'd been anticipating a political leader who would come and overthrow the Romans and herald in a glorious messianic age with a restored king in Jerusalem. They'd completely missed the spiritual aspect of Jesus' teachings. They didn't realize that he'd come to put people right with God and that everything else would flow from that. So Jesus gave them the slip. And the next morning, when people realized that he'd walked across a lake in the storm, then they became even more convinced that this wonder worker, this man, he was worth following. They didn't, they didn't appreciate that uh, this sign pointed to Jesus as creator God, with power over all of creation. But they did want to benefit from his powers. And who can blame them? A man who can calm a storm and multiply meager rations to feed a multitude and can feed the sick, heal the sick. Well, it's like having an infinitely more useful version of the Midas touch. And that is where our reading picked up this morning. Verse 26 Truly, truly, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
Now, like we heard a few weeks ago with the woman at the well, at first, the people misunderstand. I'm not sure I blame them, to be honest. I mean, these people were living hand-to-mouth, and food that did not perish, well, that would completely revolutionise their lives. And then there's that talk of eternal life. So, of course, they ask, what must we do to get this? And the answer, strangely, is much harder than they imagined. You see, as first century Jews, I think they were probably expecting to be told to make another sacrifice or to make sure they tithe absolutely everything and certainly never to work on the Sabbath. Or maybe they thought it would be a call to arms and that they were going to have to fight alongside Jesus to herald in this new age. But the answer was so simple, it was hard. They just had to believe in him whom God had sent. Now, immediately, the people ask for more signs. Now, they've just seen him heal the sick, feed the 5,000 and walk on water, but it's okay, Jesus goes along with this. He goes back to scripture. It wasn't Moses who sent the manna in the wilderness, he says. It was God the Father, and the same Father sent him. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And we see that Jesus is both the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and he's displayed the same power over creation that Yahweh demonstrated in those scriptures. Looking back today, these signs just seem so clear. But then still not sure what he's asking them to believe in. And in John 6:47, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes has eternal life. And later, he reiterates the promise of eternal life and spells out what it means. He says in verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, this truly shocking pictorial language must have silenced the Jews. I mean, these guys wouldn't even eat the blood of an animal they, they, they just didn't touch the blood. And they were now being told to drink Christ's blood. But as so often, Jesus wasn't expecting them to take it literally. He was teaching a spiritual truth through a physical object. And when he said, we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he was referring to his sacrifice on the cross when his body would be broken and his blood spilt. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood means to take his death as our food and to base our spiritual well-being on his sacrifice. Jesus was well aware of what was going to happen. He had already chosen to take our place on the cross in order to pay for the sins of the people he was talking to, and of our sins, my sins, your sins. He had chosen to suffer torment, torture, and death. And unless we accept that, unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we cannot come into a right relationship with God. All we have to do is believe So, was he talking about communion? 
When he says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Does he mean that all we have to do is take communion and it'll all be okay? Is that the work we must do to make sure we do not perish? Not at all. There's no work that will gain us salvation. All we need to do is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that it was his broken body on the cross and the blood he shed for us, and that is the means of our salvation. Augustine, the great church father, put it very simply. Reflecting on the parallels of verses 40, 47 and 54, he wrote, To believe is to eat. It is those who believe that the body and blood of Christ have given them life, who will be raised up on the last day. We eat his flesh when we believe in his saving sacrifice. And for those of us in the habit of taking communion, we do so as a sign of our belief in and reliance upon Jesus' death on the cross. It's not a case of doing something to earn God's love. It is a sign that we have already received that love. And taking part in the Lord's Supper can be a very spiritual moment. It helps us to focus on God and receive from him again. We reflect on what Christ did for us when he died in our place. And as we come to communion, we'll do this in a minute, we come to communion, the first thing we do is confess our sins in the certain knowledge that Christ's sacrifice made once and for all was sufficient. It is his death that sets us free. The Jews said that this was a hard teaching. And they were right. Jesus proved himself to be the promised Messiah, both in physical signs and in the fulfillment of scripture. But he was so much more than they were even expecting. And he was asking them not to follow him in a political uprising, but to simply believe that he was the one God sent. Some of them couldn't make that step. Many who had followed Jesus the wonder worker left. And then in verse 67, Jesus asked the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What about you? When we started our study of John five or six weeks ago, then we agreed it was pretty clear who John said Jesus was. The divine, eternal, creator God made flesh. And since then, we've looked at several vignettes from Jesus' life. And we've talked about what they meant. And each has added more layers to our understanding of who Jesus was and is. And as we prepare to take communion together, as a sign of our reliance upon him, it's worth reflecting on whether we could stand with Simon Peter and say, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'm sure there are people here this morning who, perhaps for the first time, 
are exploring this question of who Jesus is. And I wonder, after six chapters of John, what do you think? Have you heard enough to convince you? Now, this isn't a decision that should be rushed, because the call to follow Jesus is not an easy path. You see, he's not just a wonder worker. That's what some of the first followers thought, and they were disappointed. They left when it became apparent that he wanted to touch every aspect of their lives, including their spiritual lives. And if you want to find out more, then this church is an open church. We want to be a place where people can come and ask questions. We get excited by that. So if you want to ask more questions, there are plenty of people, maybe the ministry team, who would be happy to talk to you. Or if you want prayer, then there'll be someone at the back later who'd be happy to pray with you. Or maybe you could join a house group. It's a great way to ask questions. Or the next Alpha course. What about the rest of us who would already call ourselves Christians? Well, I think there's a challenge here for us as well. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, then that means we should be feeding on him every single day. So, like our breakfast toast, we should be reading the Bible and praying. Maybe we should join house groups or go along to morning prayer. But the thing is, it's not about work. Nothing that we can do, no amount of Bible reading or church attendance, is going to put us right with God. The thing that we need to do is what Jesus taught. The work of God is this, he said, to believe in the one he has sent. And so the question this morning is, to who will you go? And will you be able to stand like Simon Peter and say, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God.